it's Friday. You know what that means. It's another episode of The Dice Are Screaming. Coming at you fresh and hot. Served up with a side helping of sass. I'm literally 75% sass. Yeah. I'm saying. (laughs) You're literally... The rest is questionable morals. Oh. (laughs) TMI, but um, welcome. To our first true podcast of the year, uh, last episode or the previous one, we had a New Year's resolution sort of thing where we just talked about things that we'd like to improve upon. And on that note, uh, thank you all for the nice comments and clever little uh, jabs that you <laughs> gave to us. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, some resolutions are worth keeping throughout the year, and uh, I tend to work, look at myself as a work in progress. So, you know, lots to do and uh, keep... I have to look at myself as a work in progress. I, I really do. I mean, because if, if this were the finished product, I'd send it back. Uh. Oh, well, <laughs> I don't know where you'd send it to. If you ever find out, let me know. Well, if anybody would take it. Well, there you go. you got to find some place to take it. So, you, know, you don't have a... No deposit, no return on you, so, you know. Yeah, return to sender. Mm-hmm. Address unknown. Yep. Uh, well, in any case, yeah, welcome to 2019, and this time we're actually talking serious gaming, uh, you know, rather than resolutions about gaming for the, the upcoming year. We're back in the saddle, and we're talking uh, real gaming material and DMing choices and options. Uh, I was thinking something of a musical variety, you know, oh, yeah? like, like like bards. Oh, like bards. Okay, well, you know, you'll be pleased to know that tonight's topic does deal with bards, but not directly. <sighs> oh. Yes, yes, once again, disappointment. Well, get used to it. So I'm, I'm, I've been rock-blocked. So. That's perhaps <laughs> one way to put it. I, I do uh, think that is a nice way to put it. Okay. So tonight's topic, we're going to do, since we talked a little bit about cheating, we're going to talk about where it's legal for the DM to cheat, and where can the DM cheat legally? If you can't cheat with dice rolls, well, where do you cheat? Well, that's where high-level play comes in, and that's what we're going to be talking about, high-level play. Ah, the great boogeyman of many editions. No matter what you play, some people hate it, some people love it, and some people just care nothing more than just having a good time. And I think that's where we're going to fall in in this, is that if you don't like high-level play, you know, uh, there are reasons for it. Uh, One of the basic reasons that high-level play is so poo-pooed is it goes right into Monty Hallism. Ah, yeah, everybody's got a plus three or a plus four or a plus five everything. I I, I hear that, but, you know, I agree, it it, it can seem insurmountable, but honestly, I've, I've enjoyed some terrific high-level campaigns. Yeah. Uh, it is the reward. It is the payoff for all the hard work, the scrounging, the leveling up, the trading in and out of items, and you know, weighing pros and cons of various things that you find. You know, gearing up and equipping your character is all part and parcel of maximizing your character's potential, especially if you're a fighter or Magic user, you know, you really need to work on those things that make your spells more effective, more of them, and, well, generally just more. But um, high-level play, both for players and DMs, allows them to fully stretch 
their wings. D&D is built for high-level play. Now, there are various ways in which high-level play is expressed. Uh, early on in the uh, earlier editions, about 10th through 12th level was considered the start of high-level play, where you'd start getting 6th and 7th level spells. Um, uh, that, that's a fair assessment. Uh, you know, your 10th level casters are using the level 5 spells. When you hit 12, you get that vaunted 6th level spell list. Uh, yeah, and they're pretty impressive stuff in chain there, Chain lightning and, uh, you know, um, earthquakes and other things like that, they start coming into play a little bit more often. So yeah, your simple orc nest is uh, no match for a, a wizard with an earthquake spell. Or, you know, chain lightning. That, well, likewise, cones yeah. of, And you've got more fireballs to throw. They're more effective and all that. But, you know, uh, what was once a challenge to 7th and 8th level characters, to a 12th level, a party of 12th level characters, is, you know, pretty much just a cakewalk. Yeah, I'm going through that right now myself. Uh, in campaign, the characters have progressed to a level where... Uh, preparing challenges that are adequate to the task of uh, putting them under stress is really hard. It is challenging mm -hmm. to to present high-level, experienced uh, characters played by highly experienced players. Uh, that can be tough. It's, it's a tough needle to thread because they've got a, a lot of personal experience under their belt. They know how to innovate. They're familiar with most of the typical monster challenges, uh, and they have access to the magical equipment to overcome a lot of difficulties. Now, admittedly, I do things like intentionally place obstacles that will exhaust certain resources. Yep. Uh, and, you know, that, again, is a DM responsibility when dealing with high-level play. I mean, if they've all got uh, potions of invisibility... Uh, put them in two situations in an adventure, where in the first one, if they have already used that as an option, uh, they have exhausted their potion stores, uh, and it will be tougher to pull off the same trick a second time. Uh, but, yeah, that is an accurate depiction of the challenges of high-level play. Yeah, and one of the ways that uh, a Dungeon Master is empowered to take care of this, and it is your responsibility as a Dungeon Master, is to start to understand that this is where the game kind of opens up. No longer do you have to kind of pad the encounters, you know. Uh, uh, four trolls, you know, at 8th level can be a very serious problem. And now, you know, with the literal arms of race of proliferation of magic items and spells and abilities, they're not so bad. But uh, as Mike said, there are a lot of things that uh, you do to drain the resources of the party. And also... You have to start paying particular attention to the key abilities of some uh, monsters that may not be so, they may not have been so uh, prevalent or needed at that time. For instance, as you raised the question of invisibility, well, there are monsters that do see invisible. Hellhounds. Oh, yeah. Uh, certain major extraplanar creatures have, like, the automatic ability to detect the invisible. Yeah, and some, you know, DMs. Oh, One of the big things that you fall into as a GM is cheating, and where it's perfectly legal, is now you can start doing the metagame on the players. Now, the players have been able to kind of enjoy a certain level of metagaming, even at early levels. The min-maxing, the optimizational of their characters, optimizations of their characters, and all that. 
Yeah, a little bit of player knowledge of how the system works that doesn't necessarily reflect what their character would know, but you kind of got to accept a little of that, you know. Uh, the players have, you know, a reasonable expectation of being able to use their knowledge as players. So, right. So yeah, let them have that. That's that's fine. But it, it puts you at a disadvantage when, when that is okay for them but not okay for you. And at higher levels, you can take those gloves off. Yep, no. You don't have to be afraid. You're like, oops, I accidentally wiped the party. No. Let her rip. Now, of course, the ultimate high-level uh, test was Tomb of Horrors. And if you had a powerful character or handed somebody a powerful character, like a 12th, 13th level, and you put them in Tomb of Horrors, and they did not know how to play that character correctly, they're going to die. And even with a multitude of items, like a gem of seeing, a very high-level thief with uh, find-and-remove traps abilities, and a keen sense of uh, awareness in the dungeon and traps and paying attention to clues, if you're not paying attention to all those three things at once, your character, the environment, and the abilities of other players, then you're probably going to end up with a TPK in Tomb of Horrors. Now, just as an aside, out of the times I've run Tomb of Horrors, which is probably under a dozen, I've only had players complete it twice. And not even all of them. No, not all. <laughs> so, Tomb of Horrors is kind of the penultimate of what high-level play brings about. But it's just the start, and... Oh, and of course, the Vault of the Drow. I mean, that is a high-level campaign-ending, uh, you know, Queen of the Demon Web Pits was a terrific swan song campaign-ending ultimate battle against it all uh, with a variety of options included. So there, there are precedents in there for non-absolute fatal, but extremely challenging. I mean, the Tomb of Horrors was kind of a... Uh, uh, it, it has a reputation as have, having been created very much as a DM's toolkit for ending a campaign that has gotten out of hand with yep. multi Hall characters. Send them there, let them die. Yeah, Gary Gygax... Rocks fall, you're dead. ...made no pretense whatsoever about uh, having it out for, you know, players that had perhaps a too entitled sense. Mm -hmm. You know, just... You know, my super character can do anything and there will be no consequences for it. Oh boy, you do not want to sit down at his table with uh, with that attitude. No. And again, <laughs> you have to... It's not being humble, it's being aware of the situations. You know, Because a lot of the traps and tricks are ones where you have to pay attention to what's going on around you and be very cognizant of your abilities as well as... The, your fellows and companions, everybody working together. And so, yeah, that is what the boogeyman of high-level play is. Now, for that reason, a lot of DMs prefer, you know, well, we'll just, you know, end the campaign with them retiring in their keeps and running their countries, and that's fine. But this is for things that, as the DM, you can do. Now, some of this is, as I said, began this, it's cheating, but it's really not. Um, yeah, not to me at all. I mean, I actually object to that statement. I'm, I'm just going to say, you know, cheating would be a direct contravention of the rules <laughs> for your own benefit. Oh, of course. Now, uh, exercising your prerogative as a DM and upscaling the difficulty 
uh, is well within your rights. Um, custom designing is theoretically it's the DM's bailiwick. It's what we do. Right, but the cheating that I'm talking about specifically is making counters custom made to take direct advantage of the player's weaknesses. And the reason why you can do this, and this is kind of, I'm going to cover this in two parts here. Is the first part is, what can constitute high level play? Well, for you, you have to answer that on your own. Do you consider 10th level high level? Okay, it is high level. But is it 18th level? No. And once, you know, you get characters with 18th level and access to wish spells and, you know, miracle and true res and all that, you do... Oh, where is your sting death? Well, yeah, you do kind of now no longer have to worry about that. But that's on the player side. Let them have that. Don't try to take that away from them. Another way to foil them is things like death is just the beginning. <laughs> soul traps. You know, anything that traps the soul, like a demi-glitch. No coming back from that. The soul is gone. <clears throat> oh, uh, not to mention, look very closely for spells that... Do not offer a saving throw. Yep. Uh, and remember, no saving throw for the monster, no saving throw for the character. Uh, spells that have an automatic and unstoppable effect uh, are your best weapons when mm -hmm. dealing with characters who otherwise have superb saving throws, terrific protective devices. Uh, you know, if, if there is a loophole there, look for those. It is... Your prerogative as a DM, when you design encounters, to kind of begin with the end in mind. And then the other part with uh, with that is, well, where do they play? Where do they adventure? I mean, they've kind of been stomping orcs and, you know, monsters all over the countryside. I mean, you suddenly now more powerful monsters, like, suddenly, like, five Tarasks have a mating session in the middle of your keep? Well, you know... Um, yeah, that's a bit much. A little contrived, perhaps. Right, but, but you know, that's a little extreme. So where did these high-level monsters like the Thessal Hydra, ooh, the Frog Hemoth, and even, you know, Beholders, you know, they were always there. Where did they come from? Did they suddenly just spring into being? No. Just like Tumahoras is a way off in the middle of nowhere sort of place, lost in through the ages and antiquity. So are other dungeons and other adventuring locales especially the plains, demi-plains especially, uh, can make great adventuring locales that have different rules and effects. For instance, one of the great GM cheats is anti-magic zones. Now, you don't want to use it too much because it gets old hat, but yeah. every once in a while, hitting a dead zone of magic, like going to the Plain of Shadow and fighting a cabal of shades that are trying to influence the leaders of the world through manipulative magic, in their dreams and other realms of thought and even uh, nightmares um, would make a worthy example of a high-level campaign that could be played out in many episodes. And during that time, you may run into places trying to track them down that have low magic or different rules for magic. Yeah, I mean, negative plane energy or, mm -hmm. you know, shadow plane energy uh, operating under different principles than the player characters are used to. And we covered that in uh, briefly yes. uh, meta-style when talking about extra planar adventure. So, I mean... But now the clerics have to memorize certain spells and prepare them to protect the players from negative energy, which sets yeah. up some spell slots. And, and mages some, and... Some restoration for, you know, like uh, uh, energy draining attacks yep. and things like that. 
you know, they're, they're now filling their spell slots with the stuff that they're going to need, which diminishes their access to the other, like, well, uh, it, is it the uh, Flame Strike or the Restoration? I don't know today. Yeah, Greater Restoration, I'm going to need that. <laughs> and, you know, that's what you're looking for. Now, fighters always fight, because that's what they do. And so how do you challenge those guys? Well, specifically saying, uh, this is where you as a DM have to work a little bit of the meta. Usually having, in our example, we're just going to run off this Cabal of Shadows, or Shades. Now, of course, you know everybody knows that you know, Shadows are easy to kill monsters, relatively high levels. Yeah, low hit points, easy for the but cleric to blast. are player character type uh, NPCs. Which means they are fully leveled opponents. Um, they can be, you know, like, you can have in an epic level campaign a, you know, 17th level shade rogue and a 16th level shade priest. And, exactly. And this nice. cabal of them are as well equipped and as dangerous as any member of the party. And they could have a, a coterie of vampires helping them out. Also leveled up. Yes. Not as much as the, the Cabal itself, but still very formidable. And you can have a group of Spectres. Um, you know, you, one of the things that a lot of DMs do when high level is that they just front load a whole... Well, six Spectres are kind of nasty. Well, let's try 17. Okay. You want to avoid that because then you run into the mass effect of your... As a DM, you're spending so much time on the small encounters that combat tends to get unwieldy. Try to focus your monsters and uh, encounters with things that aren't just a great big number, but have a lot of punch and difference. Now, you know, incorporeal ethereal creatures do have uh, a lot of built-in damage reduction, but they can be held in check by clerics. That's the big uh, key there. So, again... You're using clerics channel energies and turn on deads to keep them away. Stage two of that would also be in an encounter like that. Uh, you know, Randy makes a great point, uh, one I strongly approve of, which is, uh, you know, you may be tempted to hit with the big cluster. Right. Uh, don't necessarily fall prey to that. Uh, bunched together enemies can be grenaded by your player characters mm -hmm. with single spells. Uh, you, the gloves are off, you're allowed to design much tougher, much more complicated encounters, and it's more work to run them, but you can preset a kind of timer on the number of rounds before reinforcements arrive, the variety of positions that creatures are in, and you can break them up so that there is a kind of, uh, you know, fresh reinforcing, you know, influx of creatures uh, midway through the encounter. Uh, this takes some of the steam out of, like, we just fireball the room. Yeah. Uh, they can still, and the big thing is, let the players have those moments, you know? Oh, some, yeah. I mean... You know, that's this is this is the, the payoff. Let them have their moment of glory. I mean, you want to have players um, who want to play high-level characters, let them have their fun and design encounters that sometimes they get to just wail away at a group of inconsequential monsters for a while and they feel tough and then they get uh, careless and then you <laughs> squash them like insignificant. I'm sorry. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, we let the DM demons out, oh, of, yeah. out of the box there. Yeah, they let their guard down and then that's when we <laughs> bounce. Uh, that's what we're looking for. Uh, but yeah, upping the challenge level, you're allowed, uh, in fact, I, I strongly encourage, uh, 
placing thinking, reasoning opponents against players. Uh, at the earlier levels, they may be facing a lot of unthinking, brutish creatures. Uh, with some higher level master up at the top doing the actual thinking work. Uh, at high level campaigns, a multitude of thinking opponents and, you know, carefully reasoned defenses can be set up. Like, well, how do we approach an area where they've got superior firepower from a nice safe distance? Uh, mm. Like, wow, you know, this, this one's going to be a tough nut to crack. You know, somebody's obviously going to have to get their resistances up and, you know, execute the charge with as much support as possible to break the line and, and get into the enemy's midst. Uh, yeah, go ahead, make it difficult, create bottlenecks, create moments where uh, there is no easy means by which to neutralize the threat. Uh, yep. And on the plane of shadow, you can have a negative energy effect that makes healing half as effective. And there now you're not only facing a problem with uh, the amount of hit points you're dealing with, but with those specters hitting the players, now there's a large task ahead for the clerics and other divine casters to remove those negative levels and restore the characters back to full effect. And they're going to soon run out. And then the stress starts to hit the spellcasters to start looking for ways to neutralize the enemies at a distance before they can get close. And, you know, they're, you're setting in the players a challenge for them to work uh, harder. Another good one for that uh, scenario would be also a Draco Lich, one of my favorites. Ah, yeah. And a Death Knight. Debuted in, uh, you know, Lost Caverns of Sacanth, which was a terrific uh, yeah. dungeon bash module. The Death Knight was another superb one. Yep, and the Death Knight, um, you know, on this plane of shadows, also benefiting greatly. And, you know, so you we're just giving you a, one example of many that can be used. And, you see, now you're going to a demi-plane that's not attached to your campaign world, but it's having a direct effect on the campaign world. And then, you know, you can do other things, too. Uh, very powerful. With 3rd edition uh, and 2nd edition, dragons became much more formidable creatures. Not to really dismiss dragons in 1st edition. There were some <coughs> good alternate rules, but they weren't up to the same kind of snuff as demons and devils were. Yeah, I have my... Uh, issues with the uh, you know the changes between editions, but I gotta say uh, the upscaling of dragons in the second edition was very pleasing to me. The alternate rules in Forgotten Realms yeah. uh, that gave dragons back their dignity, so that you could scale up the encounter for much higher level characters. And then finally, uh, one of the aspects of the third edition that. I considered one of the most outstanding DM tools ever crafted, uh, and they deserve full credit for this. It was the building of difficulty scales, yeah. uh, scales of difficulty for encounters, uh, and templates that could be stacked onto yep. a standard creature. And also advancement charts for all kinds of creatures. And all creatures can be advanced to a certain level beyond and even above what they normally could do. Now, in this, we're out of the first edition bailiwick as we move into these alternate rules. But uh, there are lessons that can be taken yeah. from this and applied to many different games, many different styles, and, you know, even uh, kind of tinkered with a little bit to 
strengthen a first level, or I mean, to strengthen a first edition campaign. There are terrific lessons to be taken there because upscaling the relative strength and complexity of an encounter uh, may not necessarily be enough. I mean, having a, for instance, a giant crocodile, uh, that's, that's great. The game rules are already there for a giant crocodile. Uh, but, all right, now add the template dire. Uh, or, yeah, or um, um, fiendish. Or, yeah, or add them both. Yep. <laughs> fiendish dire crocodile with a coterie of worshippers and, you know, uh, smaller... And a lizard and druid buffing them. Yep. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, and now you've got the support staff, the backup critters, and this thing is nigh unto godlike in its power. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and also, you know, you want to work on high-level um, locations. I can give you, like, the Tomb of Burning Iron um, that I ran uh, for Greyhawk, uh, playing of the, going into um, the Sea of Dust. Ooh, I loved using the Sea yeah. of Dust as a yeah. perfect location. For because now I'm not only fighting the monsters that are located in there, for instance, uh, Negative Energy Remoraz. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> now there's some cruelty. And some dune-like worms, purple worms. Um, you've got, well, you're not just facing monsters, you're facing the environment. And that's kind of the, the crux of, you know, like plane travel and other things. You're making the environment difficult. And, rather, and you're keeping the players constantly being besieged. And that's kind of what makes high-level play kind of a hassle for a lot of people. And I can understand why there's a big turnoff from that. But, you know, you don't have to let um, high-level characters just wander off into the nether worlds of, you know, high-level places. You can use um, your campaign world, just like uh, we used with the idea of Tomb of Horrors, having these little secret ancient troves of deadly antediluvian mysteries of non-Euclidean mazes <laughs> of all kinds of crazy stuff that you can put in there. It's you've always been wanting. So, you know, it's also a place for you to express yourself in ways that you haven't been before. But um, there was a module, um, I Elevate, which was made for 18th level characters. And uh, anybody who's played to that, whoa. Um, <laughs> My kudos to you. Yeah, going after the Crip of Rao in uh, the world of Greyhawk. And you had some very powerful characters they gave you right off the bat here and just let them loose. Just let them go. And boy, was that a tough game. Well, yeah, again, you know, we've covered uh, the wonderful powers of artifacts. Yep. Uh, and the unique challenges of that. Uh, there are certain things that, uh, again, artifacts are loopholes in game terms where many of the standard rules do not apply. Um, that, that it too is a marvelous challenge, even for very high-level player characters. Right, and so, you know, when you have artifacts in the game, you know, they also can be used by the enemy. Now, let's say that this cabal of shades that we've conjured up here, and we're just loosely talking about them, they're after the eye and the hand of Vecna, but not for the reasons that you would think so. They want you to harness them for other reasons. They can specifically, as the players advance through these challenges, note the, you can use their knowledge or your knowledge through them to specifically target every one of their weaknesses <laughs> because they've seen and been watching this and they've been aware of the player characters growing in power throughout the years 
And so now this is their moment to take the player characters out. This is all a trap. Yes, um, and having uh, a good intelligence network for your chief opponent to the player characters, uh, having them in possession of knowledge so that you know they know about the resistances and the high hit, heavy hitting equipment uh, that the player characters have. Uh, engineering, not so much instantaneous attempts at assassination, but attempts to weaken or diminish the characters ahead mm -hmm. of time, be it yep. with uh, you know exposure to toxins, uh, which is somewhat tougher with high level characters with great resistances. Uh, but also theft of key items. And also the use of spells like spell immunity and items and spells that they can use. So what does it say? know that the mage loves to use fire spells. Well, they're all going to have fire resistance. Yeah, they're all hopped up on fire resistance and yes. uh, talking extra sassy. Yep, and you know you can use that knowledge that you have as the DM through your opposition. And when the players balk, like, how do they know all of our exact weaknesses? Well, they've been watching you, scrying in other magical forms. You know, even though the players may indeed have mind blank and other anti-scrying devices and effects constantly up, there's always good old eyes on the ground that don't exactly fight them, but just gulp at a distance, watch, and then report later. Yeah, an intimidated innkeeper or a, you know, a castellan or a, a uh, maid or butler who has been compromised, you know. Oh, compromised, I hate that. Yes. You know, if a little spycraft on the DM's part uh, can be forgiven because, honestly, to make a high-level campaign challenging, uh, it's it's worth your time and effort, and you are excused for being a little less <clears throat> fair. Okay? Right, and so, like, this Draco Lich comes down while they're in a dead magic zone inside this demi-plane. It's still a dragon. Yeah. And <laughs> they suddenly don't have any magic weapons. They got to start getting creative, man. So, you know, well, he can't cast any spells and he can't use some of his supernatural abilities. Very true. But he can still screw you up. He can bite you, tail slap you, breathe on you. Yeah, and any, any very tough, intelligent monster inside of an anti-magic zone is the equal of your high-level fighter. Oh, and it is going to take some serious work for them to whittle people away without all those nifty bonuses. Mm -hmm. All those strength bonuses piled on from that girdle of giant strength, gone. Uh, you know, you're back mm -hmm. to just duking it out muscle style, which, again, is not necessarily humbling per se, but it'll make that player character sweat. And again, I would like to just note, don't overuse that too much. Too many dead magic zones tend to make... And rightfully so, make players. Yeah, it's, But you're taking way too much out of the it's game. ideal for a key encounter or, like, the last major obstacle before achieving the goal. You know, pacing these things is always a nice idea. And shaking it up so that different of the techniques we have mentioned are used at different times in different campaigns. Uh, you know, don't un unload the entire wagon on the doorstep. There. Yeah. Okay, just just throwing it out there. You know, make it... Make it uh, Fun, but not unfair. And that's when that's why Mike probably balks when I say cheating. There's a lot of cheating that goes on in high-level games, but it's not the way in which classically cheating is used. You're yeah. allowed to remove some of the constraints that you keep on 
your behavior. You know, well, how would these uh, group of assassins exactly know what we do all the time? Well, your characters always go out and drink on the days, and so they find you in the end and kill you. But, well, okay, maybe that's a little unfair, but... But scaling up the strength of the poisons used, mm -hmm. uh, if, if we're talking first edition, then there's a provided list of poisons that uh, was put out in a Dragon Magazine article yep. that is marvelous, some of which are very difficult to resist. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be fatal. Right, because poisons don't always just kill you. I mean, some do, of course, but a lot of them debilitate you over a period of time. And likewise, uh, if you have access to them, uh, the complete magical items set. Uh, what was the name of those? The Encyclo Encyclopedia Magica? Yeah, I think so. Um, those magical items included a number of things from very curious editions that are non-standard, but they are Canaan. Uh, I routinely consult this to come up with items that oh, bypass just, what just, people expect. We just raised the specter of Canaan. Yeah, well, hey, he's got a point. You know, never let any... There is never a bit of a scrap of magic item or lore or anything that can't be used by the Dungeon Master. So all is fair in Love and War and in DMing. So Yes, which is a little mixture of both. Mm -hmm. um, it is both love and war. No better friend, no greater enemy. <laughs> um, but, yes, does this sound like a lot of work? Of course it does. That's why high-level games usually aren't played with the same um, panace, with the same... Um, numerous amount of sessions for lack of word grasping here. And you don't see as many high-level games just wheeled out week after week. It's very intense, and it requires a little bit of work and story crafting. But yeah. it also needs a lot of book work and forethought. You just can't throw it out there and expect you know to have great results. Otherwise, players will get bored with their very powerful characters. And you as a DM will get frustrated when you do plan for something and you're not fully anticipating what the players are bringing to bear in that game. So make sure that when you do tackle a high-level game, you know, it does kind of scale up. It starts around about 10th level. And I think, for me, 15th level is where I consider that high level. And that's where, you know, everything just, there are no longer any limits on this. Just yeah. let it all go. <clears throat> Take the gloves off, which uh, Randy ran a third edition, very high-level campaign uh, for quite a long time. I mean, uh, from scratch, characters began as low-levelers uh, mm -hmm. and worked their way up. But the degree to which effort had to be put in ahead of time to properly challenge the players really increased. And it is a burden for the DM. Uh, it's one you just kind of got to accept to take on if you're going to run a campaign to high level just to see what it's like. Uh, be prepared for that because the extra the extra homework will pay off in terms of challenging mm -hmm. gameplay. People will still get a kick out of it, even with very powerful characters. Uh, the City of Ghouls I ran in the Underdark and Greyhawk was very challenging for a group of 18th through 19th level characters, and that was a rough one. <laughs> now, on the other hand, I am going to just drop the uh, drop the pretense here and say point blank, if you're not 
ready for that level of commitment and that level of paperwork, yeah, go ahead and retire the characters. We're not yeah. saying you can't or that you shouldn't. No. Uh, we we understand entirely. Uh, if you're at a point in your life where that degree, like I'm going to need like no less than six to eight hours of prep work every week, and my work schedule does not allow that. No, this is not for you then. This is not the time or the place to try that level of campaign. Because uh, at that level, winging it is not enough anymore. Yeah, you just can't, you can't uh, improvise that easily. You, you have to do a lot of work. But you can also use modules and other supplements to help pad that out. You can give it a shot once in a while. It can be fun, change of pace, and definitely lets players play with things that they can't normally expect to play with. Like, hey, I got a wish spell. What do I wish for? <laughs> Uh, you might want to hang on to that for a while because I will be throwing some curveballs at you shortly. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah, I, I, I've well conditioned my players. Uh, they have a look of trepidation when they get their paws on a really nice piece of treasure. Because, oh, God, this means we're going to need this. So <laughs> yep. He, he gives nothing away for free. And There's always a meaning. One of the things that, uh, if you use the rules properly, high-level play isn't that, you know, you say, well, players could just wish everything away. Well, you know, look at the material component costs, and you can report back to me. Um, <laughs> yeah, those wishes and true resurrections aren't free, and uh, they eat up a lot of material resources to the point where the mage and the cleric are like, what? I'm going to have to start charging for this, guys. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm out of money. I'm literally going to have to stock, start putting my stuff up for uh, sale. <laughs> Hey, uh, staff of the Arch Magi for sale. Yeah. Only, only slightly used. Yeah, just pawn it, put it in hock for a while, you know, and you buy back. You know, so. <laughs> Had to go to the uh, used magic items dealer. Yep. So you know, again, play as you see fit, but high level play. We're just advocating here. It's not as uh, bad as a lot of people make it out, but it is a lot more of a challenge. So if you feel up to it, indulge, and hopefully our advice helped you. Get a little bit of a thirst for that. Yeah, so. if you've got some very wily players who are well equipped, I hope some. I genuinely hope that some of this has turned out to be useful to you, or put a new idea in your bonnet uh, to mm. torment those players with. Uh, <laughs> consider it our gift to you. Yes, your players will hate us for it. And <laughs> with that, we're gonna bow out. Um, we run our gamut, but uh, again, any comments or concerns you have, let us know what you think about it. And, of course, just keep those comments coming and uh, call-ins as well. Oh, yeah. Any references to ideas you've had that were super challenging as a DM or things you encountered as a player that were incredibly challenging and really put you on the spot, go ahead and give a shout-out. Yep. You can uh, put that up on the Facebook group there that we have for the Dice Streaming or get all of us on Twitter. And follow me on Twitter. And... Um, Speaking of that, I'm at Death Hand Gaming. That's D E T H A N D Gaming, and Mike is at Magi Box. That's right. So get a hold of us. Let us know what you think. But we're gonna sign out here. So you have a great one. And remember, may the dice, dice always roll in your favor. favor. We're out. See ya. <laughs>